Welcome to the Premium Property Podcast. Created by two beginners, it is the perfect listen for those of you who are just finding your feet in the property industry. We will ask questions that other beginners, just like us, have been waiting to hear, and we will be learning along with you. I'm Harley. And I'm Guy. And this is the Premium Property Podcast. Hi Sam, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on today and obviously what you're sort of doing in property and the way that you're scaling your portfolio at the moment, we thought it'd be great to get you on. So yeah, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me guys. Delighted to to be on. Brilliant. Yeah, so for those who maybe aren't sure sort of what you do in property or what your background is, would you just be able to give us like a brief introduction to who you are? Yeah, no problem. Um, I've pretty much got two main interests or business interests in property. The first one um, is the portfolio landlord stroke investor. So I'm growing my own portfolio, um, various strategies that I use there. Uh, my other in, uh, business interest is my trading business, which is um, Dyer & Co. Property. It's a property management company which focuses on um, property investors and that side of property. We've got an acquisitions department so we do quite a bit of sourcing, uh, but at the end of the day, yeah, we're we're a lighting agency. Yeah, great. Yeah, so seems like you've sort of got a good amount of experience there in different aspects. Obviously, you're doing the sourcing and you've got the lettings, but then you you're obviously building your own portfolio. So, yeah, um, in terms of before property, what what was that? What sort of made you get into property, and what were you doing before property? Okay, that's quite a good question. Um, so no one in my family has ever done property. Um, but I was, I, I, I got brought up that, you know, go to school, get good grades, go to uni, get a good degree, get a graduate job, work for a really good company, you'll get a really good pension scheme. It would be a good idea to have alternative investments like stocks and shares, and then you'll retire and you'll be comfortable. That was kind of the what I was sold. So I sort of, I went off and did a degree in civil engineering just because I was good at maths and physics and it just sort of made sense to me. Um, While I was at uni, I was renting a flat um, and I just remember thinking my landlord, his job, he he owned half a city, like massive port, big family, you know, owned loads, streets and streets. And I just thought his job is just driving around owning properties. It's like, it's almost like a computer game in a way, but in real life, I thought that's quite cool. And um, my dad worked in the oil industry and he used to say, yeah, there's guys, you know, they'll, they'll work offshore, earn money, they'll buy like properties uh, and, you know, sort of top the pension up, that sort of thing. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's what I'll do then. So I kind of set my sights on the oil industry. I was going to build a career in the oil industry, which I did. Um, finished my degree, got a job, went offshore, got into rotation. And literally every single penny that I earned, I bought buy to let flats with um and after a while i got a bit sick of being offshore just socially and mentally it's not great being stuck on a you know a rig half of the year um so i I had a sort of flash forward you know um i'm a family man i've got a wife and a daughter now and a dog um and um i thought you know what this is no life so i got out and i thought what can i do loads and loads of crazy ideas 
But ultimately, I landed a job with an agricultural surveyor and estate agent. I was there for about a year and a few things happened while I worked there. But long story short, I, I quit that job and um, I had a sort of small letting agency. And how that came about, my brother was working abroad at the time. He'd saved up some money and I sourced him a couple of buy-to-lets and I managed them for him. And it sort of grew arms and legs. And I, I kind of had a sort of sourcing business stroke letting agency. I never intended to set up a letting agency. It was all about the investing side for me. But I kind of fell into all of that. So just to complete the story for you, because you're probably going to ask anyway, between then and now, I grew the agency to a certain level. Um, my heart's not really in lettings. My heart's in the investing side. But what happened was I merged my company with another company. And we merged them together. My business partner, uh, Tracy, who had the other company, she'd been, in, she'd been in lettings about 23 years. So she runs the lettings and the operations side. And I'm like the business development stroke finance guy. And obviously that didn't happen overnight, but that's where we are today. And um, so, so as I say to people, I own a letting agency, but I'm not, an, I'm not a letting agent, if that makes sense. Um, and what that's allowed me to do is focus on our acquisitions department. So most of my day, I'm, I'm, effect, I'm, I'm effectively sourcing property, but it's more a consultancy service. You know, I work with sourcers, I work with various professionals. And at the end of the day, I speak to people that have cash. I help them spend the cash. I'm a company managers and properties. That's my sort of business model. Yeah, great. And I guess like, obviously, like you said, you you were doing the lettings and you, you grew that quite well. But um, the fact that you merged shows that obviously it's so important to focus on what you enjoy doing and what you feel that you're you're good at. So yeah, that's, um, that's a great point. And obviously I'm sure sort of merging has helped you sort of grow the business even more. Oh, absolutely. I would, wouldn't even be half the size if I'd stayed on my own and tried to do everything myself. Um, so early on, one of my good business sort of friends, associates said, what are you doing giving away half your business? Because we, we adopted, so my company was called Dyer & Co Property. The other company was called One Property Services, but we adopted um, the Dyer & Co brand. And the reason was Tracy thought it sounded posh and also, <laughs> I don't know why, but also we had a bit of a social media presence and she kind of, her personality is more, I just want to get on with running the business, you know, running the day-to-day business. I don't really want to be out winning work and doing all that stuff, which I was like, that suits me fine. Um, so obviously having a, a business partnership has its challenges. It's, um, you know, sometimes you've got to agree on things and compromise on things, but I actually think it's one of the best decisions that I ever made. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the sort of business partnerships, they're a bit like, they're a bit like Marmite, aren't they? You, they either work really well or they, they don't work at all. So yeah, um, it's just a case of obviously, like you said, making sure that you can work on each other's strengths and um, basically differentiate what you both do. So yeah, um, Obviously, sort of, you, you mentioned to us before that you buy a lot of tenanted properties. So this isn't something that really gets talk, talked about a lot. And we don't, we haven't really had anyone on our podcast that sort of buys a lot of tenanted properties. So would you be able to sort of talk us through the sort of main differences when buying a tenanted property compared to just buying a standard um, vacant property? 
Okay, yeah, good question. I think, um, yeah, there's not a lot of tenanted property on the open market. That's the first thing. Um, probably, I would actually probably near enough every tenanted property we've done has been on, or near enough every tenanted property we've done has been on off market. Um, so I guess the difference is, so with a vacant property, so let's forget about the residential homeowner market. Let's just talk purely about property investors. So for a property investor, if you're buying a vacant property, now let's just assume that it's an immaculate condition ready to rent. I'll go on to refurbs in a minute. But if it's ready to rent, you, you basically get your keys and you're instantly cash flowing nothing. And usually you've got a mortgage, so you're cash flowing negatively. And you've got your council tax, your utilities and, and whatever to pay until you get a tenant in there. Now, nine times out of 10, if you're buying a property for an estate agent, you've still got to put all your safety certificates on. So like your gas safety certificate, your electrical certificate and all the rest of it, smoke alarms. So that, that costs capital. And then you've got to wait to get it rented out. Then you've got to pay your agency fees, you know, referencing and move-ins and lease setup and all that before it's tenanted, which, yeah, that's fine. But if you bought it tenanted, and here's the thing, if you bought it tenanted and you did your due diligence on the tenant, as soon as you take ownership, you're cash flowing immediately. And there should be no capital expenditure. Now, um, I've seen it done been done very badly where you, it can be very, very risky. You can buy a property of a tenant in, they don't pay a penny and you can't get them out. I've seen that happen. But if you do it right and you do your due diligence, which should be done before you take ownership, you're effectively cash flowing from day one and it can be quite good in that respect. Now, the other point is if you're buying a property that needs a refurb, now I, I know why people buy properties that need refurb and there's a lot of the training course culture is buy smelly houses, renovate them, add value. You know, it's, it's sort of dr drilled into you. And it, don't get me wrong, it's a fantastic strategy, but it's not the only strategy that, that works. Now, when you buy a property to refurb, one of the things I think people don't think about is if it takes you four months to refurb it, that's four months where you're losing money because you're not bringing in the, the 650 a month or whatever your rent is. And if you've got a mortgage, that's going out and all your bills. So actually, that's something that's not quantified. So already, you're talking a few thousand pounds. One of the things that you can do with tenanted property is very often your seller is a landlord. And what you've got to bear in mind is your the seller will have a motivation to keep the tenant in because let's just say an offer gets accepted and the, the, the sale falls through. Well, the seller's like, well, who cares? You know, I'm still getting my money no skin off my teeth, let's go again. Whereas um, if it's vacant, there's a bit more urgency because they've got costs. So what you often find is because this, the landlord that's selling has removed a whole layer of risk, they're more willing to accept the discount. And the other point to, to, to note, and one of the ways we've been picking up lots of deals is Section 24 has been our best friend. So just for anyone that doesn't know, you know the removal of mortgage interest tax relief is what I'm referring to. Effectively, you've got landlords that own properties in their personal names. They've got a real tax problem and they're motivated to sell. So very often it makes sense to sell at a 10 grand discount rather than keep it and pay the tax. So we've had a few tenant properties in immaculate condition, fully compliant. We've picked them up 
10 grand, 15 grand. We even did one like 17 and a half grand below the home report. So what that really means is you're buying in cheap and you can either refinance at a later date and release the money or just sit there with equity. So it's maybe not as fast as like your, your standard buy, refurbish, rent, refinance, but it's a good way. You can effectively pull off a deal behind your laptop, no risk of a refurb, um, you'll bring in some rental income plus a discount. And what you'll often find is you can have all your money out in under two years, you know, quite easily if you're doing it right. So it's, you're dead right. It's not talked about a lot, but it's something I'm, it's, it's, a, it's a strategy I'm quite passionate about. And because I've got the lettings experience and background, I've kind of got the sort of natural ability to, to find deals like this. Because we do, we do a lot of them in-house. We have, um, with the acquisitions department, you know, we have people messaging us all the time saying I'm selling properties and it's a, it's a source of leads at the end of the day. And you know, very often, you know, people know in Scotland, die and call buy tenanted properties and you just come in and what you find is um, it's, uh, it's a, it can be, you know, you can get some fantastic deals. And the last point of conscious, I've been talking for a long, long time here. When you're buying portfolios, which is kind of, you know, a bigger step up, you'll find that virtually all of them will be tenanted. So, or, or most of them will be tenanted. So it's, you could buy them tenanted and then you don't have to keep them. There's no such a thing. So I think that at least understanding how they work can be a very, very um, useful skill to have for any investor, whether you are or are not using that strategy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that, that's a great answer. So thanks, Sam. And um, yeah, I think, like you said, that, there is a lot of benefits with it because you do have that cash flow from day one um, and it is just about getting it right. So in terms of obviously you touched on um, making sure that you do the right due diligence on the tenant. So how would you do this without having sort of the direct access to, to the tenant to make sure that you are, um, they are going to be paying the rent? Okay. So good question. We've got standard sort of list of conditions now. So when you do your, you know, very often we'll try to get a deal agreed off market before we involve solicitor, sorry, direct with the vendor before we get the solicitors involved. But if we put the offer in, we'll basically say, you know, this is our standard set of conditions that we expect. Make sure they're aware of that before the offer goes in. Now, sometimes they may provide us with some of that stuff before the offer goes in, so they don't need to get included. But the standard list of things we ask for. So first of all, we want a tenancy agreement. So we, we need to know well, what rent is the tenant contractually obliged to pay and how much is the deposit? Is there a deposit? So then that leads on to, we want proof that the deposit is lodged in a scheme. So we want the deposit protection certificate because what you don't want to do is buy a property and the tenant's got 600 pound deposit. You get the, the sale over the line and you find that the deposit's nowhere to be seen. So who's coming up with that 600 quid? It's going to be the new owner. <clears throat> so lease, deposit. Um, we'd ask for a rent account. Now, if it's a, gone for a letting agent, most letting agents have software that can produce a rent account pretty easily. If it's a self-managing landlord, this can be quite difficult to get, but we'll, we'll make exceptions. You know, We'll do other due diligence, but we'll always ask for one. You've then got your inventory or your check-in report. Again, same scenario. Most letting agents will do an inventory, you know, your photos, your meter readings. Um, so obviously that's important, you know, so you know what condition it was when the tenant moved in. You then got your uh, safety certificates. 
So in Scotland, it's slightly different to in England. Uh, we've got gas safety certificate. We've got the Legionnaire's Disease Risk Assessment. We've got your EICR, your electrical report, which has been in Scotland for a few years now. I think it's only just come out in England. Um, if it's portable appliances, we want a PAP test. Um, smoke alarms. Now, we, we always ask for a fire detection certificate. This is this is something that actually annoys me, <laughs> the, 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 the regulations say you have to have the smoke alarms, but there's no regulations about having the paperwork. And you get it all the time. Well, I've got the alarms, yeah, but what, why not have a bit of paper just to say you've got the alarms? Um, I'm going to go off on a massive tangent here, but there are councils in Scotland are asking now for proof that you have your certificates. So if you could be in a situation where they go, give me proof you've got your alarms. If you've got no paperwork, an electrician's signature and everything on it, the council have to come inspect the property. And that's a pain in the backside. So I don't see any excuse not to have a bit of paper for your smoke alarms. But again, they can be captured on your check-in report, I suppose. But I'm just a belts and braces kind of guy. Um, and then finally, your energy performance certificate or your EPC, which there's a national register for them. So very often you can help yourself if there is one. Um, I think I've covered everything. So that's your documents. And then obviously you want a viewing. Um, to, to check the actual property, check the condition, that sort of thing, verify if it's furnished or not. Now, most of the markets that I operate in in Scotland are unfurnished. I think I've covered everything. I haven't got the list in front of me, sorry, so I'm just doing this from, from, from memory. But, you know, there's a few bits and pieces there. And very often, if you get a bad vibe from the tenant, you know, we may decide, well, we want a credit check or can you give me a bank? We might actually do due diligence on the tenant again. We have done that before. You've asked them to do credit checks. But very often, if you've got a rent, like there's one we've got going through conveyancing just now. Tenant's been there five years and we've got a rent account five years back showing they've been paying like clockwork. So you, know, you kind of think, well, what, why would you bother? You know, you, you, There's evidence there they've been paying the rent like clockwork. The house looks fine. Why would you do that? You know, So it's there's an element of um, you deeming what's necessary. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And obviously... So say if you, um, I mean, I don't know if it's the same in Scotland and my, my knowledge on um, sort of the, the legalities of lettings isn't great, but I'm pretty sure that there's obviously different types of contracts for lettings. So if there was, um, is there like any contracts where if, it, if the tenancy had that contract, then it would put you off buying the property? Okay, that's a good question. Um, so I believe in England, you've still got short assured tenancies and assured tenancies. We had the same system in Scotland, um, albeit slightly different, I believe. But on the 1st of December 2017, that was all gone and they brought out what they call the private residential tenancy or the PRT. Now what it did, it, it's a bit controversial. Some people are, are a bit doom and gloom about it. Um, but on other hands, I actually overall quite like it. It's modernised the, the system. It's made the, the, the paperwork way simpler. And there's only one lease you can give a tenant. Now, the fundamental difference is there's a start date and no end date. So as soon as the tenancy start, you're instantly on a month-by-month -month rolling contract. Whereas so you don't have any of this locking in for six months or a year or any of that sort of stuff. Now, that's obviously caused problems for the student market. We don't operate in the student market. Well, we've got a few students that let. But we're primarily in the long term in the family markets, the professional markets. So it's not really affected our business too much. Um, so that that's pretty much the only contract that will be there. Now, when you said 
you're buying a property and there's a contract that you're not keen on. Now, 99% of the time, or maybe not 99% of the time, majority of the time at the moment is going to be a PRT or a short assured tenancy. Um, it could be an assured tenancy. Um, I have come across a few of those, but generally speaking, what we will do is refresh the lease the day that the tenancy concludes. Sorry, the tenancy please. The sale concludes. We may even refresh it beforehand. So very often, we're not too concerned about the lease because most tenants aren't. It's more, what's the rent? When's it due? What's the deposit? And if those terms are kind of fine, it doesn't really matter because we're pretty much going to refresh any tenancy onto a PRT anyway from day one because obviously we're, there's a new landlord. Um, so obviously we'd refresh the tenancy. You don't have to. You can just do an addendum to lease. But again, as I said, I like a belts and braces approach. I see no reason why you don't just refresh the lease. It's all clean. It's all tidy. So again, um, if there was a complicated arrangement, you would just say, well, maybe you won't do the deal. So the tenant kind of has to be on board. And part of this process is um, the seller stroke the buying agent, so I would be me or one of my team, would be speaking to the tenant and kind of getting a vibe to, you know, are they going to be a pain in the arse when we get them into our portfolio or are they going to play ball? And um, so again, it's just another... Some of this you can't quantify and you can't write rules. Some of it is just a bit of common sense because at the end of the day, it's people dealing with people and you've just got to make a decision. Is that tenant, you know, are we happy to bring that tenant on? So I think that there, that's maybe a key point to raise. When you're buying a property that's vacant, all you're doing due diligence on is the property. But if you're buying a property that's tenant, you're doing due diligence on the property and the tenant and they're two different things. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's such a um key point that obviously you need to make sure that you you can see yourself sort of working with that tenant and that you're not gonna have a lot of disagreements. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. So um obviously we were just talking about um buying portfolios as a whole and everything and doing everything with the um the tenants. So in terms of actually buying a portfolio that is already tenanted how would you go about um how would you go about with the rent so say you did buy a portfolio but the tenants are buying are paying significantly lower rent how would you go about fixing that would you just allow it or would you just raise the rents regardless again there's no definitive answer so first of all you would do your numbers based on the current rents now if the current rents work for obviously whatever your end goal is in terms of cash flow or whatever then fine but if you know that they're below the market rate, there's kind of two courses of action there. Either number one, you do nothing, but you just rest safe in the knowledge that if it comes to relet, you can get the rent up or you can increase the rent in the future. Or you may decide to raise the rent there and then. And again, it all depends on who's the tenant, what you're going to get away with. Well, when I say get away with, what what's going to work? You know, what, what's realistic? Um so, for example, there's a deal that I did um, recently where the rents were below the market rate. They still worked. Um, and there's six in the portfolio and two of them are relet. and we've got the rents up. But there's two in there in particular that are way below the market rent, but they're kind of the tenants are ticking along, they're paying their rent, everyone's hunky-dory. And it's sort of a case of, well, it's reliable, and, you know, if you're quite comfortable not raising the rent, well, why would you? But again, it all comes down to, to what 
the investor is, is wanting out of it. Are they happy that, yeah, the rent's below the market rent, but there's a reliable tenant, or are they want the rent up? And it can just be a case of, well, is the deal going to work or not? Yes or no? So, yeah, I get the argument. You know, as an agency, we, we are very pro-rent increasing. So we'll review our, our portfolio um, you know, quite regularly and we'll identify properties that need rent increases and we'll do small rent increases, you know, £10 a month or sometimes a bit more um, just to keep keep them in line. And my, my sort of view on it is you should always trail the market. If you've got a really long-term tenant, what you run the risk of is you know, eight years down the line, you're £200 below the market rent, you know, and that, that's just ridiculous. Whereas if you're just chipping it up by a tenner or so, you're catching up. But at the point of purchase, if you're purchasing them below the market rent, you've just got to weigh it all up. Has the tenant been there eight years? Has the tenant, you know, put in a new kitchen and decorated and made it all amazing? And if you're 20 quid below the market rent, are you really that bothered? Because you know that that tenant is putting value in it. So again, I, I'm sorry I'm going off on a long answer, but there's no real right or wrong answer. What my sort of opinion on it is, what are the rents now? What's the purchase price? How's the deal looking? And if there's scope to put the rents up, that's just a, a little bonus that can't quantify that you could probably do something in the future. Yeah, definitely. So essentially, if you were buying a portfolio that was already tenanted, you wouldn't raise the rents if it was just slightly below market value, but the tenants were really strong. But if it was kind of heavily below, you would still raise it because you would essentially be making a loss or not as much profit. Well, yeah, it, it all depends on, on on the numbers. You know, it is what, what's the purchase price? So rather than what's the market, what is the rent? What's the purchase price? What's the real value? And just looking at those relationships. But generally speaking, if the rents are too low, usually it'll kill the deal and it just doesn't work. Um, one other point we do, you've got a, another purchase that's going through at the minute. And one of the conditions was, oh, the rent's a little on the low side, can you up it by 25 quid? And they upped it from 525 to 550. And that's gone up. And part of the, the, the deal was give us evidence you've done that. So we obviously got the rent increase notice in the letter and the acceptance from the tenant that it was done. And so you know, the rent's going up. And then a month or two later, the deal will conclude. And then obviously got the new rent. So you can do it quite short notice. But the other, the other thing is as well, one of the things as well is if you're coming in, not just as a new agent or a new owner, um, now, now you kind of want to, one of the letting agent's jobs is to kind of build a bit of a relationship with the tenants. So what I mean by that is if you come in as a new agent and straight away you're hiking the rents up, you're setting yourself off on the wrong foot. If you come in, honor whatever they were paying before, get to know them over a few months and you'll build a bit of rapport, then you slowly start eking the rent up. You've already got that relationship. And this is kind of what one of my fundamental things I think a letting agent is there for. If you're the landlord dealing directly with your tenants, that's the relationship. And the tenant knows you own the property and they can pull your strings and they can do whatever. There's a bit of psychology going on there. As soon as you put a, a letting agent in the middle, they can use the, they've got quite a bit of power because if a tenant is, you're like the letting agent can turn around to a tenant and go, oh yeah, well it's just the landlord's being really unreasonable, and but you know I'm your pal, please don't make my, my life difficult type of thing, and build a bit of rapport, and they feel less inclined maybe to take advantage. Um, it's just just one example, but a, a, a good agent is kind of like a mediator in the middle. Now there are bad agents, absolutely, but a good agent will be a mediator, 
and it works both ways with the landlord and the tenant. They kind of mediate the situation. Now, if you think about it, right, if you were a tenant living in a house and this is you know, the classic one, you're in rent arrears, if your landlord is chasing you directly, you can kind of go, oh, yeah, but this and that and excuses and whatever. And you kind of know, like, most self-managing landlords have a handful of properties. So they're not big businesses that they've got systems, processes, and you know, can run, you know, but you'll be on top of everything quite slickly. I mean, some self-managing landlords do run their businesses very, very slick, but they're not managing portfolios of a few hundred properties. But if you had a letting agent and they were on the ball, you know, um, delivering letters, bang on the right dates and all the rest of it, you're going to feel a bit more like, well, these guys aren't mucking about, you know, they aren't mucking about and there's less sort of like psychology going on there. They're going to mm, actually, yeah, I'll, you know, I can't, you know, they're going to go the full mile. I've gone a little bit off topic, but we are talking about rent collection and, you know, rents. Um, I always say be strict, but nice with rent collection. And it's the same where your rent rises, be strict, but be compassionate. Sorry, yeah, be strict, but compassionate. So tenants in arrears, be strict, but be compassionate. So, you know, if they're taking the piss, you know, you're, you're being really strict. You're following the procedures. You're doing things when you say you're going to do them. You're getting the eviction papers in pretty rapid, which can be rescinded. Um, but the same with rent increases. You want to be strict. You want to. You, know, you don't want your your landlord because effectively, having rents below the market rent, you're you're throwing money down the drain. That's what you're doing. You know, there's no short answer. Um, but you want to be compassionate. So it's about is it is it a good idea to put the rent up, or is are we getting a good deal here? You know. So I've got a, a property in my own portfolio, and the rent's a little bit below the market rent rate. But the tenant is absolutely fantastic. She's put new flooring in. She's decorated. She's tidied the garden. The house is amazing. She's probably going to be there for the rest of her days. She loves it. Um, she's got a dog as well. I'm quite pro pets. Um, she's got a dog. She's you know because a lot of agencies don't allow pets, so she's there forever. So why would I stick the rent up by 10, 20 quid when she spent a few grand on the property? Do you know what I mean? So it's there's no black or white answer, unfortunately. But again, it comes down to you know. Um, a good agent will be able to judge and be able to advise accordingly on what they think the best strategy is. Because really, that's what we're talking about here. It's all it's all strategy and planning, and you're running a business and you're making decisions based on the information that's in front of you. Yeah, definitely. And I think like like you're just saying, then when you do go in to buy these um, portfolios that are already tenanted, you want to come across as understanding to the current tenants. But then again, you do want to also be strict in the fact that they're not just going to walk all over you and just not pay market rent so that, that that moves me on to my next point about refurbs then so kind kind of a two-parter when you do a, um, essentially buy a portfolio that doesn't need a refurb just yet but you think in around five to just five, in five years time you think it's going to need a um a cosmetic update would you still include that within your figures if that makes sense you mean um you mean at, at the purchase stage yeah um yeah you would take it into account because you would kind of you know, the property would have a market value, and if it's if it's need if it's five years time needing a refurb, then you kind of right now it's probably in a condition that's not like mint mint mint. Just had a refurb, you know, it's not Instagrammable. Um, that's a phrase I nicked from somebody else. Yeah, but, but you know what I mean, don't I? When you say you know, I thought, you know, picture in a kitchen, you know, Instagrammable picture. Um, if it's just okay, you know, that's going to be factored into what you're going to pay for it. So I would say yes, it is getting factored in at the purchase stage. 
Yeah. And then kind of to add on to that, and this doesn't just have to be in when you are purchasing portfolios, but just houses in general that are already tenanted. If um if you were to go about refurbing them, what, what, what would you do with the existing tenant, if that makes sense? So generally speaking, you're not going to refurb it if there's a tenant there. Right. So you, you, the, the, there is a, I get the classic by you know, the, the BRRR, however many R's you want to add on. The, you, you buy it, you add the value, you refinance it, you pull the money back out. Now, with a tenanted property, so let's, let's do a couple of examples. <clears throat> so you could, um, right, so, so we've, had a, we've had a couple of tenanted purchases recently that had quite big discounts. And they were bought cash and they were both off market. So the client's going to come in, buy it cash. Now he's cash flowing for six months, put quite a strong rent on it, um, you know, with, with no mortgage. So he's, he's, there's a few grand comes in. And then at six months, he puts a mortgage on it. Now, one of the common things is you can get properties downvalued, um, you know, particularly if they're on the open market, because the surveyor comes out and he can see that you've done nothing. But if you've bought it off market and it's quite low key, you know, you cash buy it with a tenant and, you know, six months later, you refinance it. The surveyor doesn't know what it was like when you bought it. Now, yes, you should always have a bit of contingency that they're maybe not going to quite value it where you want it. But very often, you can pull out a big chunk of money, but you've not done a refurb and, and had a big load of, like, risk and hassle doing it. It's quite, it just sort of happens, you know. Um, I'll maybe give you so, some numbers and maybe quantify a bit better what I'm trying to explain here. Yeah. Um, so this is cash buying. I'll go on to mortgage buying in a second. So there's a, there's a property here that we bought um, concluded uh, in July uh, this year. So two bedroom flat in Dunfermline. It had a, a valuation, a home report valuation at £85,000 and we bought it for £67,500. So it was a 17 and a half grand discount. Now, Bought that, the client bought that cash. Um, there's a rent of 575. All of the safety certs were there. So as soon as he took the keys, it's just cash flowing. So at 575, six months rent is 3,450. Now, at the six month point, if he puts a mortgage on and he got 75% loan to value mortgage on the 85 grand, that's 63,750. So you bought it for 67 and a half. He's going to get a mortgage out for 63,750. Plus, he's had 3,450 of rental income. Let's take some fees off to say it's two grand, round it all up. So what you're really talking about is he's left, he's going to leave three grand in that deal and he's had not had to do a refurb. Now, I, I accept that maybe it might not value at the 85. It could value the 80. So yeah, you'll leave a little bit more in. But here's the thing, this particular property um, it was, was really, really nice. It had a, a modern kitchen. It was really, really done. Kitchen, modern bathroom, sorry. It was really, really well done. But the kitchen was a wee bit tired. And you know, I said to the client, I said, you could change that kitchen. I wouldn't bother until the tenant goes. But if you change that kitchen, this is a strong 90 grand property. And it's 90 grand any day of the week. So, yes, I get the whole thing. And you'll, you've maybe come across this before. If you cash buy a property, don't do any work and refinance it you might not necessarily get the full value because what surveyors don't like seeing is a big uplift very quickly with nothing done. But fundamentally, if you're, if you're an investor and you're in it for the long term, if you can't release it at the first refinance, you're probably going to get it back out at the next refinance. 
and properties like this one, it was a two-bed flat in Dunfermline, near the train station, really popular area. There's loads of comparables. It is 85 grand any day of the week. So that's the first thing, right? If you were to buy it on a mortgage, you could buy that on a mortgage. Um, now, it is difficult to refinance when you're on a mortgage because you, very often you'll buy on a fixed rate and you'll have early redemption charges. So you may decide, well, actually, it's worth taking the early redemption charge to get the money out. Otherwise, and what a lot of my clients are doing is they're just buying good quality properties at a discount on a two-year fixed rate mortgage. At the end of the two years, they just refinance and they're releasing the equity and they may be releasing a little bit of capital growth. So I guess um, I guess with a tenanted strategy, you're probably getting a, a bit of a vibe here from what I'm saying. It's not as fast, money in, money out. You can get your money in, your money out relatively quickly, but we're talking like if you've got a two-year window, you can quite almost comfortably do it. But, you know, it's, it's not as money in, money out. It's not fast. But the fundamental difference is there's not loads of risk for refurbs because, yes, we all know, you know, you can spend 10 grand and add 25 grand of value. We know that you get your Instagrammable kitchens and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, there's risk in that. And we all know that refurbs run over budget. You know, I've had countless refurbs where you've gone in and there's problems and you have to throw money at it and you can maybe save money elsewhere. They're no black and white. Things go wrong. Contractors give you grief. So I'm not knocking refurbs. You know, they're, they're a great strategy. And I've done loads of, re I've done loads of um, my refurbished rent refinances myself. But I'm starting to do more and more tenanted properties because it's more of a... I wouldn't say safer, but it's more, I, I think it's, you're, you're in a bit more control, if that makes sense. You're a bit more control of what you're doing. Um, and if you're not in a hurry to get your cash out, like in six months, if you're willing to wait a, few, a bit longer, you know, it can work. It can be a very, very good strategy to adopt. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, so in, in that in that case, then when, when a portfolio does come, to you and so on or you just look at buying it but there are a few properties in that portfolio which do need refurbishing would you disregard them and just take the rest of the portfolio like the houses that don't need refurbing and are already tenanted no not necessarily um there was a purchase um not too long ago where there was a block before there was you know three tenanted and one vacant so what you would do you buy you buy the whole thing the, the vacant one, you go straight in and refurb it, get it on the market. The three that are tenanted, you would either you may serve notes to quit, or you may keep them. So in this scenario, I think there was the empty one got refurbed, one got notes to quit because the rent was just ridiculous, and then that got refurbed as well. In that time, another one served notice, so that was staggered. And then that they served notice, and that got refurbed. And there's one left that's tenanted, and at some point they'll leave refurb it and whatever now what very often you could do you might buy that on a two-year fix or three-year fix or five-year fix the whole thing one mortgage and you would just refurb them as and when you go and at some point in the future you'll maybe refinance and pull the money out so it's a bit it's not as again it's not as fast money in money out but it's quite controlled and what you'll often find is if you treat it as a standalone block then the rent money effectively could pay for the refurb and you can stage your refurbs one after the other. And if you buy a bigger block, it's exactly the same scenario. You know, you can you can almost, if you have a bigger block, you can almost get into a position where, you know, the rents are all paying for the refurb of the one that's vacant. 
Um, and it's just you're kind of running like a mini portfolio within a you know, a mini portfolio within your portfolio, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And obviously, um, you, you sort of mentioned buying sort of the whole block on a mortgage there. So in terms of the actual structure of buying portfolios, so um, in terms of sort of stamp duty and then say you're, you're buying on a mortgage, um, would, the, would the stamp duty be sort of per property or would it be on the overall value? Um, I know it's a slightly different than stamp duty in Scotland, but, um, and then same with a mortgage, would it be sort of, for the whole property or would you get a mortgage on each, um, the whole block or would it you get a mortgage on each individual property? Right, that's a really good question. And I can't really comment for English stamp duty because I think I know what the answer is, but I'm not going to say, <laughs> I'm just going to keep the golf <laughs> shot because I could be wrong. <laughs> but in Scotland, similar to your 3% additional dwelling supplement, we've got a 4% additional dwelling supplement. And if you're buying a single property, yeah, you've got your normal stamp duty, which kicks in 145 grand, is a bit higher. But um, if it's a second home, it's 4%. Now, if you're buying anywhere up to five properties, you pay stamp your 4% on all of them. Um, they're all treated individually. As soon as you buy six or more, and it has to be in one transaction and it has to be the same seller, then you qualify for what they call multiple dwellings relief. That's a bit of legislation. And what it effectively means is they there's no ADS and there's no stamp duty. They just wipe all that out of the way and there's a formula. And what the formula does, you need a degree, you need a degree in rocket science to, to understand it because most solicitors don't seem to understand it. But what it does is it gets the average value across the portfolio. Then it um, multiplies it by the number of units. Then it adds on what they call the minimum prescribed amount and there's a way they work that out. And then if it's split use, so say it's part commercial, they'll add on this other little bit. Now that, you probably, it does sound like a lot of gobbledygook, but let's give you some real numbers. So for example, I've actually, um, I've got a case study just up on my, my screen here um, that I can go through in a minute. And the, there were six flats and the purchase price was £405,000. Now, if you were to buy those six flats separately, the ADS on that, is it's about 16 or well, 400 grand because let's do 400 is an easy number 400 grand at four percent is 16 grand and then plus four percent on the other five so you're about 16 grand right now with multiple dwellings relief applied the stamp duty on that was 2187 pounds and 50 pence so just over two grand so already there's 14k saving just on the stamp duty what also happens is when you go up to the bigger portfolios there was one um, last year, 1.2 million was the purchase price and the stamp duty was only about 11 grand. It was around about 1%. And so obviously I don't know what the, the normal stamp duty would have been on that, but you know it's going to be a lot. So you start to find the bigger portfolios, the stamp duty savings are phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's because I think that's sort of something that a lot of people would, would miss out and they'd probably skip out on deals because they think they have to pay all this stamp duty for for the the sort of value that they're um they're buying the properties at so yeah um and just to clarify that's the scottish legislation isn't it yeah i don't as far as i'm aware it doesn't exist in england but in scotland 
it's kind of been a bit quiet, but six plus unit portfolios seem to be growing in popularity in Scotland. But what you're finding, this is a crucial bit of information, is a lot of amateur investors or newer investors um, had a client who had a quite he had about 400 grand to spend and he wanted to buy like three portfolios, but he never invested before. And the mortgage lender knocked him back because he, he had less than two years experience as a landlord. And you know, there's things like that. So if you are operating at that level, lenders are going to go, well, you're coming in and buying eight properties in one go. What experience have you got? So it's, um, so, but what we're finding is more experienced landlords who've been doing single properties and have built a little bit of a track record, they, they're moving into this arena. But in this arena, the paperwork gets a lot more heavy. But if you've got good, if you've got a good mortgage broker, a good, um, I was going to say good letting agent, but I suppose we do more than the average letting agent. You know, this is one of the things that I do with my clients is help them understand what's what, what they need to be able to you know, pull off these deals because it does get more complicated, but the rewards are way bigger. So do you want me to go into a few other advantages of portfolios while, while we're on the topic? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously we've d- discussed um, the stamp duty. Um, we've also discussed the fact that most of the units are probably tenanted which is a given, and we've already discussed obviously how you'd handle them. Now, it's actually easier to get discounts on portfolios. Now, it, it's probably common sense, but you know, in my experience, you could buy a portfolio of mint condition properties and still get like 10, 15% discount. You know, it's, it's pretty obvious and you've got the economies of scale there um, for the seller as well as the buyer. So on the economies of scale thing, when I'm assessing a single unit, I'll use a thousand pounds as a solicitor fee. Um, now, I'm just a way to refer to a case study here that, that it's, it's, a, it's a portfolio that I purchased personally um, and it concluded um, March this year. So it's obviously quite fresh, but I'll just keep referring to that to use the figures for you. Um, so the so a solicitor, so let's just say six properties individually, six grand. In this case, it was 3,600. So already we've obviously saved a bit of money there. You've got your mortgage broker as well. Now he might charge you 500 quid per mortgage or whatever it is. And you know, in this case, it was a 500 quid for the whole thing. So for six, you know, one mortgage on six properties, and then your valuation fees. So you're doing a mortgage, you get a valuation fee. You know, I know TMW at the moment are doing free valuations, but you know, your likes of your Aldemars and your Paragons for about 230, 300 quid. Now, when you do a portfolio, you know, it, it does the economies of scale kick in. It's not a lot, but it all adds up. And we've already yeah, we discussed stamp duty, right? So there's already a few advantages there, buying in scale. And the other thing is as well, when you're buying um, a portfolio, whether or not they're in the same block, they could be at opposite ends of the country. You can still, um, what's it say? yeah, you still, you can get one mortgage on the whole lot. And what that actually means is, and a lot of people maybe don't quite realize this straight up, but if you've got a portfolio of 20 properties and 20 single mortgages, that's an admin headache, redoing them one by one. It's the same with like your landlord insurance. You, know, you can get um, portfolio policies. It's an absolute headache. And what you often find, and I've got a couple of clients going through this at the minute, um, whereby they've built the portfolio to such a level and they're going, they're trying to consolidate you know, say like 10 buy to lets onto one mortgage. You know, and obviously you, you do that if you, if you know you're going to keep them um, long-term. So it's just, it's just all these things. You think, well, actually, if you want to scale up, it makes sense to buy uh, multiples. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think um, from what you said, there is so many advantages. And like you said, there's a lot of um, you benefit from economies, economies of scale massively. So, yeah, um, obviously, I think a lot of our audience are people who are relatively new to property. So would you say that someone who is new to property can sort of obviously you don't want to be buying massive portfolio straight away but do you think that someone who's new could start buying small portfolio straight away or would you suggest to start with single lets and then uh, I, just single properties yeah i would i would always recommend buy one or two single lets to begin with um get a feel for the process with small numbers you could buy your first property could be a tenanted purchase as long as you've got a good letting agent or you know advising or somebody that understands it is helping you but there's nothing wrong with jumping in with a tenant purchase I, I would certainly get a couple of single units out of the way so not not just to get your head around you know how it's working getting a feel for, for landlording but mainly the lenders because lenders this is a thing i learned quite early on from a mortgage broker and he said yeah there's phenomenal deals out there and they look like great deals on paper but if you can't get the money then you're in a really tricky position so if you're mindful of what the lenders want, because if, if you can't get lending, very often it can be game over. So if you go into a deal, really understand what the lenders want. Do the lenders like this? Are they keen on this? And where we are right now, with all the tax changes, landlords are flocking to limited companies in their droves. Virtually every purchase I do um, you know, for, for my investor clients is limited companies. There are more lenders entering the market, but the mortgage works. Never used to do limit company. They, they came in about two years ago. More lenders are slowly coming in, but it's still, there's not as many as if you're buying in your personal name. Now, my view is that surely over a period of time, if landlords keep flocking to limit company market, more lenders are going to keep entering if they want to stay in the market. That's just, it's going to happen, but it's just going to take time. So, but really, if, if you're conscious of what the, main players want then it makes it easier to, to to navigate so i would always recommend buy a couple of single units first and try get up to your four properties so you're in a portfolio landlord um, and then uh, <clears throat> by all means dive in do a bigger portfolio there's not when i did my first portfolio it was quite daunting and i thought why 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 but when i went through the purchase i went this ain't really any different to buy in a single unit it's just that you know the first one was six units and it was just i've just got to do it six times over it's the same idea the value you know the fees are slightly bigger but it's not really any different and so really the only thing that i suppose is scary about it is is the amount of money that's involved and the numbers you're playing with but fundamentally the process is no different but i still would you know if you're brand new to buy a let just get you know get yourself a, a decent uh, low risk terraced house in a strong area get something decent get get your fingers stuck in um and you know just get a bit of experience behind your bit or you under your belt yeah definitely yeah i think that is so key just just making sure you understand the the fundamentals of it um but yeah i think like you said obviously with portfolios the the principles are still the same you're still analyzing deals in the same way it's just bigger numbers isn't it so yeah yeah um so in terms of we've sort of touched on this a bit already, but in terms of um, how you actually sort of judge, judge a portfolio deal, would you judge it 
completely based on yield or would you do it based on return on investment or sort of is it completely dependent on the type of deal? I guess it depends on, so <clears throat> we're in a slightly gray area here because I, on a personal level, um, I'm focusing on portfolio acquisitions. Uh, but my investor clients, my agency, you know, I've got a few that are buying portfolios and it all, it all starts with what does a buyer want? <clears throat> so on a personal level, I'm wanting to buy at a big discount. Don't really care what the yields are. I just want to get good quality stock at a discount so I can recycle some money and park them. Um, so I'm not really building an income portfolio. I'm just I'm in an accumulation stage where I'm accumulating assets. As long as they're ticking over, I'll just wait, basically. Um, so so I'm, I'm assessing them. What's the discount? Is there strong rental demand? Don't really care what the yield are. It's all about you know, what's the cash flow at the end of the day. Will the cash flow from the rent sufficiently cover the finance payments? There's another string to the bow as well. I'm buying portfolios using private investor finance. So I'm effectively, it's a totally different arena to you know, the way I'm doing it. Um, whereas my, my clients in the agency, they're using their own money and they're just buying a portfolio and maybe they want instant cash flow. So they may be more focused on yield. But with yield, high, so here's the thing, right? Assuming, which, let's just assume we're talking about property that's been bought at the market value. Now, if you're buying a property at the market value and it has a really high yield, then chances are it's more likely to be in a not so great area. It's just, you know, you can get high yield, decent, but if you're in Glasgow, you get like 12% plus yields in some areas and that's buying at the market value. But these are not really areas that I think you should be buying in. But one of the crucial things to consider is if you're getting a discount, then that makes the yield go up. So you can get really high yield just by getting a discount. But then the, obviously the other thing you need to consider is you may be buying at a discount, but if you're refinancing you know, to, to, the, to the, the higher valuation, your yield goes down. So it's, it's all, there's no clear cut answer, but a lot of uh, my clients will buy for cash flow. So it'll be a mixture of yield. But a lot of the time, they kind of just want good quality stock that you know, is going to be over a period of time, they're going to get a bit of capital growth. They're going to get a bit of rental growth. And this is one of the traps you can fall into. If you completely and utterly obsessed with yield, then buy low-end flats. But low-end flats are not going to have capital growth and they're probably not going to have rental growth. So that's another consideration. Um, you, know, you buy a property at 500 a month. The next 10 years, is it going to be 500 a month? Or is the rent going to rise to 600 a month over 10 years? Now that means your yield goes up. Um, so, so I, sorry, I'm not really answering your question, but it's kind of fundamentally the way the way that we do it in Dyer and Co is we're looking for good quality stock um, that's going to keep cash flowing and making our clients money. Now, generally, they expect some level of discount because they're buying in bulk, and that's kind of it's that sort of. Um, power and numbers sort of analogy you know because you, you're buying in bulk you got a bit more buying power so you, you, you're, you're just picking up stock at better prices than maybe if they were all separate that's kind of the but generally speaking um yeah i mean if you're moving into that arena where your strategy is portfolios you're, you're not moved into commercial you've not moved into any other fancy different strategies it's sort of buying portfolios it's just maybe a step up from buying single buy to lets and because you're buying in bulk, you probably your end goal probably is going to be cash flow. You know, generally that's why if you want to expand your portfolio quite rapidly, 
you'll buy portfolios. At the end of the day, I think most investors, whether they say so or not, most investors need cash flow. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it, it, like you said, it does sort of just come down to exactly what, what you as a buyer want. So yeah. Um, but I think obviously sort of cash flow does, does make up a lot of the, um, figures like return on investment and yield anyway. So yeah. Um, cash flow is obviously really important. Yeah. So sort of moving towards, um, the end of the podcast then if you could go back and give your younger self three top tips what would they be oh christ that's a really good question um, <laughs> so there's a couple of i think see when people go into property uh, and when, when i say go into property i mean go into property wanting to build like a portfolio or you know, do like hands on you know not, not like estate agents and that sort of thing because that technically is property but they, they have this sort of thing about you know, the quote-unquote get out the rat race, quit my job, that sort of thing. And I think I think that's maybe a bit dangerous because one of the ways that you can really scale up in residential property is uh, leveraging. And if you want to leverage, you need to have a solid uh, income. So there's, t- there's sort of two routes you've got here. Either stay an employee, earn a good salary, have your security, but be um, feeding your investment pot and then if a deal goes south, you know, my job's still paying, I've got more money and you can keep going. Option number two is have a trading business that's making profit, paying you a regular wage. And that way, if your deals go south, you've still got your money. So I think what a lot of people try and do though is they try and go full, full-time investor. And that's dangerous, particularly as mortgage lenders do not like it if your sole source of income is rent. They like seeing a wage. So me, for example, I, I own a business um, and I'm an employee. I get a basic salary from that business. And then as far as a lender is concerned, I'm basically employed, you know, uh, but it's, you know, it's a business that, you know, it's a letting agency with an acquisitions department. That's kind of my business. Um, similar to what you guys are doing, you know, if you set up a sourcing business with a trading activity, um, you know, have a business, get it to a level that's paying you a regular wage and then, then you've got an endless supply of money. So but my first tip is don't be in a hurry to go full-time in property. Um, set up a business or get a job. Get that get that running smoothly and then start fueling your pot. You will hear talk about using private investors. Now, don't be in a hurry to jump straight in and use private investors. It takes time. Um, I've been using private investors for almost five years now, but that didn't happen overnight. That was building relationships. Um, and, and actually, my, my letting agency, you know, I've got investors building relationships and just saying, well, how about this and moving it across? That doesn't come overnight. But one thing I will say, if you have your own money, it's way better because we're not way better. What I mean is if you borrow money, do a deal and then pay them back and something goes wrong, you've got to find the money somewhere. Now, everybody's got bills to pay. So having, again, that training business, that regular income, is really, really important. So if you were relying, so for example, I have had deals, I've done by um, you know, BRRR deals where I've bought property cash, refurbed it, refinanced it. The valuation's coming low. I've got to find the money somewhere. Now, if I was relying on my rental income to pay my, my, my bills, I get myself in a tight spot because what I actually do is my rental income just goes back in the pot and it kind of evens you out. So don't be in a hurry to quit your job. So I guess if I was to go back 
I would say you'll focus on building your business, get your business running smoothly. Don't be in a hurry to dive in and buy your first buy to let as soon as possible because you'll move at a far faster pace if you get some really good foundations. And I guess I've probably given three points there, have I? <laughs> but other than that, just read a lot. Um, network, make sure everybody knows who you are. I mean, you guys, a guy at Harley, have done a phenomenal job to make sure people know who you are. Because um, if people know who you are, you just start shouting about whatever you want and, and you start getting a reputation. Uh, and in Scotland, um, I think I've got a rep to Sam Dyer buys houses. Um, Sam Dyer buys tenanted property. And what then starts to happen is people contact your company constantly and you've got a constant stream of leads which you can then either convert or pass on to other professionals. And that's the other key thing. Um, if you focus on helping other people by passing them work, it comes back. So like passing work to mortgage brokers, accountants, solicitors, you name it. If you pass people work and you get a reputation for passing work, it will come back and it will be good for you. So just to wrap up, job or a trading business, get out, get yourself known and you'll try and pass other people work because um, it will it will come back and help you in the long run. Believe me, it will. Yeah, brilliant. There's some great tips. And I think obviously that first one, um, having that sort of regular income is so important because like you said, things do go wrong in property and you need sort of need that to fall back on. So yeah, um, there's some really, really great tips there, Sam. Well, let's um, see. <laughs> if you do want to be a full-time landlord, grow your portfolio massive, wipe out load of the mortgages and then retire. And <laughs> 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 they don't matter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, great stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, so finally then, is there sort of any shout outs that you want to give to anyone or... Um, for your own sort of stuff and where people can find you. Aye. Um, so we social media handles, is that what you're you're meaning? Um, are these gonna be in the, the show notes, I guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you can it's quite easy. My username is Sam Dyer Investment on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and I think I'm on Twitter as Sam Dyer Invest. But if you hit me up on Instagram, um that's probably my favorite channel. But um I'm sure, obviously, the guys, Guy and Harley, will link you up if needs be. But, yeah, we'll pop them in the show notes. That's probably a good idea. Um, and you can keep up with what I'm up to. Brilliant. Well, yeah, it's uh, amazing to have you on, Sam. And, um, yeah, we're, we've learned loads about uh, buying tenanted properties and portfolios. And, like I said, we haven't really had anyone else on who does it. So, yeah, um, I'm sure loads of people will learn a lot from it. So, yeah, massive thank you for coming on. No, pleasure is absolutely mine. Um, it's good to, to to get on these things and, and, and obviously chat about this stuff. So I really appreciate the invite and um, I look forward to listening back and seeing how awful I sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> brilliant. But, yeah, um, cheers for coming on, Sam.